From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Today, managing our expectations when it comes to restaurants. The pandemic, inflation, shortages mean menus are shrinking. Maybe there are six entrees instead of 12. And if you think about what goes into those 12 dishes from a prep point of view, you just have to have people to do that work. And in many cases, we just don't have the people. We'll hear from longtime Denver restaurateur turned consultant John Imbergamo about the trends he's watching in 2023, including dry-aged fish. It's not dry fish. Right. Long way from that. Okay. It's fish that's been left in a refrigerator and aged for some period of time, not for years, not to where it dried out like a piece of bacala. Plus, trends in tipping, robots, and hotel restaurants. I'm Marty Jewell, and I've donated several cars to CPR. I donated my cars because, first of all, it was too much of a hassle to try and sell one. And I found the process of donating so much easier. Just fill out some paperwork online and wait for the tow truck. That was it. Donating my cars is the way I support the station. Donate your car at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. If you have the means to eat out, would you pay a premium for a dinner reservation at 7 on a Saturday versus 5 on a Tuesday? Would you shell out more for a seat at the window versus by the bathrooms? This kind of flex pricing is a trend in hospitality that John Imbergamo has his eye on in 2023. He's also here to tell us what will be new on menus. Imbergamo is a longtime Denver restaurateur turned restaurant consultant. And John, thanks for being with us again. So great to be here. I conducted an unscientific poll on Twitter and Mastodon asking, would you pay a premium for primetime seating? I will share those results in just a bit. But I first, read some of them. You do, Oh, you saw them. Okay. Is this actually happening somewhere, first off? Well, I, we haven't seen it in Denver yet. And it's certainly something that's been predicted for quite some time, that dynamic pricing, which is what I would call it, it would happen first in big cities like L.A. or New York or Chicago. In fact, the system that was developed to allow this to happen uh, was invented by a restaurant in Chicago called Alinea. Oh, yes. Alinea, quite a famous high-end restaurant. Very much so. A kind of an experience to go to. Yep. So part of this is about technology, like being able to do this kind of flex pricing. Exactly. And obviously part of it is whether you consider this is a good idea or not. You know, we'll be interested to hear the results of your poll. But the fact is that anytime you align your business practice with the airline... <laughs> Yeah. You know, that can be a little risky. It did remind me of the kind of nickel and diming a little bit of pay for an upgraded seat. In our informal polls, most people were a no on congestion pricing, as one person dubbed it. Many of the no's prefer less crowded times in any case. One person said, why would I want to be there at its busiest? Yuck, too peopley. Uh, I wonder how much of that is a pandemic hangover. Trailing behind the nose were folks who answered, it depends, only for a special occasion, many said, and people wondered if the fee would benefit staff. 
I also appreciate the observant soul who points out that the early bird special is the original congestion pricing. Uh, Anything you want to unpack in those responses? I think that it's not very consumer friendly. (laughs) Although some might argue, and some did on your Twitter poll, that this allows people to make their own choices. So if you're willing to fork out a little bit more money for a Friday night reservation and you didn't make it a month ago, you know, you you neglected to make it a month ago. Mm. Or in the restaurant business, we all say that Valentine's Day is the hardest day of the year, not because it's so busy, but because the phone starts ringing at two o'clock from people who didn't make a reservation for that (laughs) night. And you have to say no over and over and over again to people who you don't want to say no to. This would allow people to perhaps buy their way in. So this is not just a speculation on your part. This has been a conversation it, it in has. the industry about whether to move in this direction. It has. And again, um, Denver would lag in terms of the implementation of a policy like this, just because there are very few restaurants in Denver Boulder where they would want this to go into place, just because nobody's really quite that busy, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, quite that in demand. I mean, there are restaurants that are very busy, of course, and perhaps could implement something like this. But in general, I think we're a little behind the technology in this regard. Inflation is hitting restaurants and restaurant patrons, for that matter. You forecast, quote, a major shakeup of consumers' value barometer this year. What do you mean by that? Well, research that I look at says the prime costs in restaurants, which we would identify as food, labor, rent, and utilities, are all exceeding the consumer inflation figure by significant amounts. The fact is, for example, great example is Denver's minimum wage went up nearly $2 an hour to $17.29 an hour. And most of the restaurants that I work with or talk to aren't really concerned about that when it comes to the regular minimum wage um, for back-of-the-house employees, dishwashers and cooks and things like that. But we've now given a almost $2 an hour increase to servers. And then we'll have to raise prices to make up for that $2 increase, thereby allowing servers to double dip because they're going to get increased tips. And, um, you know, I've got servers that make $60 an hour in some of the restaurants that I work with. So, It's a difficult thing to explain to the back of the house people why they're not getting increases when the front of the house people are. What does it mean to say, though, that consumers value barometer? Yeah, I I read um, tens of reviews a day on Yelp and OpenTable and TripAdvisor and places like that. And in many cases, people are um, annoyed either by value or portion size or price. Well, value is the algebraic equation of portion size and price. And so they're just going to have to get used to it. You know, it's just like going to the grocery store and buying, you know, eggs seem to be the target at the moment, but just about everything, you know, in the restaurant world, it's made up of all of these infinitesimal little charges. Um, So you have to buy flour and you have to buy nitrile gloves to serve people and they're up 37% or something like that this year. My goodness. And so all of those little pieces, when added together, end up being what's on your plate, along with the service, to get it to your table. So is there, in a way, you're describing a kind of 
right-sizing that needs to occur around people's expectations. Exactly right. People are going to have to, as I say, adjust how they determine value because value is an ongoing process. And it's changing quite dramatically just as we speak because restaurants are being forced to raise menu prices or trim menus or find alternative ingredients And some places just aren't willing to downgrade their ingredients to try to make more money. Mm. You talk about shrinking menus. That was also one of your predictions. The notion that a restaurant might say, you know what? We're going to specialize in these five or six entrees. It's a result of a couple of factors. One is this inflation issue where we cut down to a certain number of items and try to figure out what's going to be a bargain at the moment. Mm. You know, if pork is cheaper, then we put a pork chop on and take the chicken off or, you know, we certainly take the omelet off if we could in many cases. But it's also a factor of skilled labor and the difficulty in terms of hiring. Because if you're asking a new hire to make 12 dishes versus six, the learning curve is very different. Yeah. And if you think about what goes into those 12 dishes from a prep point of view, You just have to have people to do that work. And in many cases, we just don't have the people. I have the image. Have you seen Schitt's Creek? I have. I have the image of them at that local cafe with the menus that have 16 pages and a thousand entrees. I owned a a restaurant in the 80s and our slogan was a few things prepared perfectly. And and it it really was. You know, we, we had a limited menu and people complain about that sometimes because they don't have as many choices but you know if you have one of each of the proteins and and then a few other things you should be in good shape so mm, interesting okay so this might seem counterintuitive based on what you've told us at the same time you envision a resurgence of fine dining how does that work out well um, that comes from a a piece that it was written in a research firm's email called Data Essentials, and they were predicting a 30% increase in fine dining. There's a couple of reasons for that. One is during COVID, we lost somewhere between 65 and 80,000 restaurants across the United States. So there's just fewer seats, you know. And so the ones that are left are going to have some increases because there's just fewer places to go. Okay. I do think that fine dining is also going to be impacted by the urge for people to get out and celebrate a little bit. And that started really last year to a great extent where people... As lockdowns lifted. Yeah, after COVID or not really after COVID, but certainly as COVID slowed down, um, I think people were a little bit more interested in getting out and celebrating and being with, with their friends. And that's what restaurants are all about. You are indeed watching trends in what's on the menu. Um, dry aged fish. Tell me more about that. Almost everybody that read that part of my my list had a very negative reaction to that. We are thrilled about dry-aged beef, right? In fine-dining steakhouses, high-end steakhouses, many of them have a, a locker that you can see from the dining room where the meat is hanging and dry-aging in that room. And this is just the same thing applied to fish. It's just so counterintuitive because... People think of fresh fish as the best fish in the world. But this allegedly, according to Alton Brown and some other people that I've read. And who's um, that? I'm sorry, Alton Brown's a a Food Network celebrity guy, kind of a wonky um, Food Network guy. And 
He said, you know, it changes the flavor and the intensity of the flavor in the fish. And, um, and that's what it does for beef. Um, so why not for fish? I think that the notion of aged fish is brought, th- those words aren't the greatest together. Well, we'll see. So yeah, wait, I mean, would I dry know. aged fish come to me moist? I don't, help me understand this. Yeah, it's not dry fish. Right. Long way from that. Okay. It's fish that's been left in a refrigerator at a refrigerated temperature and aged for some period of time, not for years, not to where it dried out like a piece of bacala or something like that, but slowly aged. And then when they take it out, they would prepare it in a way that you're used to in terms of fish, maybe sauteed or broiled or baked. And so it's not dry fish, it's dry aged. Dry aged. And aged with some kind of uh, seasoning or what? No, no rubs or anything like that. Again, going back to dry aged beef, it's just hung and hung in big chunks. (laughs) And then when, when they take it back down after 80 or 100 or 120 days, they trim off the mold because it sometimes molds because it's a very moist environment where they hang that and then uh, cook it up for you. And the idea is that in that time, the flavors have coalesced. Flavors have changed a little bit more umami, a little bit more Hmm. intense in terms of flavor. Okay. Have you tried it? I have not. I'm a vegetarian, so. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. Okay. 30 years. But you've seen this creep up on the coast. Yes. And Alden Brown tweeted about it, which is why I threw it in the in my list. Is there a food trend that's on its way out? Well, you know, um, Westward did a piece about food trends in Molly Martin there said that Brussels, she thought Brussels sprouts were on their way out. I, I They're everywhere. Uh, yeah, I think Brussels sprouts are over. And we joke that trends move from east and west coast towards the center of the country. And they moved from fine dining to mid-scale casual to fast food. And so, you know, in the 80s, we had Cajun seasoned or herb blackened. And, and uh, I joked that, you know, we all knew the Cajun trend was over when I put a Cajun steak on the Mr. Steak menu in, in 1980, you know, because it, it was just done at that point. We were taking advantage of the press about Cajun food, but, you know, we weren't exactly doing the same kind of job as those guys in New Orleans with it. So I, I think that there are lots of things that we go through that are fads and not trends. And, and there's a big difference between those two. And you think Brussels sprouts are among them? I think Brussels sprouts are done. Hmm. You know, they're, I still like them when I see I, them. I, that, I'm not saying I don't like them. I like them too. Uh-huh. And uh, the one reason that Brussels sprouts are so popular is they haven't gone up dramatically in price. Oh, um, over the even the last five years, they're a great winter vegetable, um, and there aren't a lot of winter vegetables that are the root vegetable guys are uh, popular in the winter, like beets and potatoes and carrots and things like that. But but Brussels sprouts are a good winter vegetable, and they're relatively easy to make taste great. They are a love hate thing, by the way. There's, you know, I'll never eat a Brussels sprout in my life because it tastes like intense cabbage. <laughs> and it's all wrapped up as well in childhood memory. Oh, okay. yeah. Um, Boiled beyond recognition. Exactly. And we are discussing restaurant trends at the start of a new year with John Imbergamo. He's a longtime restaurateur, now restaurant consultant and marketer. 
When we come back, tipping trends, hotel restaurants, and ghost kitchens. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Jenny Brendine, CPR education reporter. Colorado is offering free preschool this fall through the Universal Preschool Program, or UPK. If you signed up, CPR wants to know more. Like, how many hours did you request? Are you optimistic you'll be matched with a provider you want? If your child gets into the program, what will it mean for your family? And what would you like to know about the Universal Preschool Program, UPK? Tell us at CPR.org. Restaurants are still recovering from the pandemic, the ones that survived, that is. COVID reshaped hospitality in ways that may endure. Let's return to my conversation with longtime Denver restaurateur-turned-consultant John Imbergamo. He put together a list of trends he's watching in 2023. It seems to me as a diner that there's a real tension between whether a place is going to add a service charge to their bill and I've seen these in various amounts and for various people within the restaurant. You know, who who does it benefit? Is it back of house, front of house? Um, there's kind of a tension between that and tipping. Where are you seeing that headed? Well, if you think there's a tension on the consumer side, you should be on the restaurant <laughs> side. Hours and hours and hours and miles and miles and miles of Excel spreadsheets have been spent on trying to figure out if this makes sense or not. And we've seen the beginnings of a trend in Denver restaurants towards service charges. And that's mostly been driven by the increase in minimum wage for tipped employees. And that's an important distinction that the minimum wage for tipped employees has as big an impact as it does. So we've seen some restaurants like Juan Pedro's group, the, the Culinary Creative Guys Institute, a 20% service charge. Uh, Mercantile and Fruition have service charges. Frank Bonanno's restaurants have service charges. And those are the 20, 21, 22, 23% kinds of service charges. We've also seen a bunch of restaurants institute a minimum wage fee. And those sometimes are 3, 4, 5%. And that money goes specifically to the back of the house or is shared among all employees. It just depends on the restaurant. And part of this is driven by the law because in a restaurant, I can't distribute the regular tips to the back of the house. I can't force servers to distribute their tips to the back of the house. Whereas if I collect a service fee, I can distribute that however I like. Mm. And it's a big distinction um, when it comes to how this occurs. We haven't seen a massive consumer pushback on service fees from the restaurants that have employed it. One of the big questions is, do you leave the tip line on if you do a service fee? So if you do a 20% service fee, do you put the tip line on there? And most have chosen to leave the tip line on there, but explain the service fee very explicitly on the check. So you're a, a big consumer in terms of restaurants, I, I, I follow you on Twitter and Instagram and watch your um, experiences all over the city. So what do you think about the service charge? How does, how does it make you feel when you see a 20% service charge added on? And do you tip in addition to that? Oh, um, you know, I, I like that it's the math is done for me. I mean, I just I, there are such rare instances where I would tip less than 20% that 
it doesn't feel icky in any way to me. Like, oh, that was an 18%, you know, interaction. I, I think that my concern more generally is at what point do you itemize on a bill, the this fee, the that fee, the, you know, minimum wage, versus just increase the cost of my pasta? It, it's a huge issue. And we've seen one of the best restaurateurs in the world, Danny Meyer in New York, decide to just increase the prices of all his food. And he called it hospitality included. And it was a dismal failure. Oh. A dismal failure. Um, I don't know that he would describe it as that. But, you know, he, he reverted right at the beginning of COVID, reverted back to tipping in all of his restaurants. You zero in on hotel restaurants in particular. You know, personally, I find that they can be very mixed, often empty, maybe a little placeless somehow, sad. Uh, but I've also seen some very beautiful hotel restaurants. Uh, what, are you, what are you watching out for there? Well, I used to have a, a, a maxim for dining, and that is you never eat prime rib at a Holiday Inn because they, you know, you cook a whole prime rib and they sell two pieces, so they just reheat it the next day. And, and your point about them being empty it can sometimes be true. But we've seen restaurants that actually don't want to be identified as hotel restaurants. They happen to be restaurants that are in hotels. Oh. So I, I represented Penzano for, I don't know, 15 years or so. This is an Italian place that's in downtown Denver. Yes, in the Hotel Monaco, the Kempton uh, Monaco. And or adjacent to. Well, we had <laughs> depending separate on how you... <laughs> addresses for Penzano and the hotel. And um, Kempton, the organization that owned both of those properties, hired two different PR firms for the hotel and the restaurant. But you see a restaurant like the Union Station Restaurants Mercantile and My Clientele Trey and Stoic and Genuine or Tavernetta at the Bourne, which is in the Bourne, but really you don't think of Tavernetta at all. as Bourne is a hotel. Yeah, I'm sorry, the Bourne Hotel. Um, you don't really think of Tavernetta as being a hotel restaurant. You don't think of Mercantile or, or Altrea or Stoic and Genuine as being restaurants that are associated with the Crawford, but the they're Crawford in the same. The, the Crawford is the hotel in the Union Station. Yes. Yeah. But they are in the same building. And then, you know, we see Apple Blossom, which is Paul Riley's place across from the Monaco. And um, I think that there is a, a greater acceptance of locals going to those restaurants, not just hotel guests. And they're not just there as an amenity for the hotel. And there are groups, uh, hotel groups like Gimpton and Sage that focus on dining and aren't considering dining an amenity. And so part of this is about the perception, the, the vision of the operators and the owners, where they perhaps spend their marketing dollars and how they cast the nature of their restaurant. Yeah. Essentially, are you putting in a restaurant just to serve the hotel guests yeah. or do you want it to be a destination? Certainly when we opened Penzano, they hired local chefs. Jen Jasinski was the not the opening chef. She was, I think, the third chef there. But James Beard Award winner. Exactly, yeah. They, they hired chefs who they knew would make that restaurant a destination for locals. And hmm. and Penzano is a great example of that. Um, so are the, the restaurants at Union Station and Tavernetta. John, last year, a sprightly robot brought me my noodles at a restaurant in Aurora. Reminded me of Rosie from the Jetsons a little bit. No apron in this case. Uh, when it comes to dining, are robots taking over? Or is that a trend that is overstated because it's 
so delicious for like TV news to <laughs> show a robot. I think that the robot thing is a gimmick. I just read a piece yesterday that said that Chili's, which nobody uh, accuses Chili's of not following trends, but they just wiped out their robot test because they found that the robots were slower than humans. <laughs> Who knew that that was a metric that they would apply? You would think cost would be the only metric or ease of finding these robots, but they uh, wiped out their robot program and have instituted a new program in the kitchen where they found a piece of equipment that cooks steaks faster than others. Now, that's probably uh, not a robot necessarily. It's I would call that an appliance. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but the place where I hedge my bets here is in fast food. I think there's going to be some significant use of, of robots in fast food, both in cooking and then AI, artificial intelligence, in terms of taking orders, um, especially through drive-thrus. If mm. you think about drive-thrus, that body that's answering your drive-thru doesn't necessarily need to be in the restaurant, even though in most cases they are at the moment. They could be in a call center in South Dakota, for that matter. So, oh, I see. So not just AI, but it's possible that you would put your McDonald's chicken McNugget order with honey and barbecue sauce. Those are my two. Uh, you might tell that to someone who's not at the restaurant. Yes, exactly. And so many people use apps now to order their food. Mm -hmm. And so there's no no human involved at all in that regard. I walked into a McDonald's on Colfax recently and I... Sorry and, to hear that. Oh, no, it was lovely. Yeah, I entered my own information on a screen in my own order. Kiosks, yes. Yeah, exactly. Also popular. People thought that kiosks were going were gonna to take over the fast food ordering world. And they really haven't to any great extent. We've got Bird Call here, which has, I think, three or four locations, one in the Springs. and, and The chicken restaurant. Chicken restaurant. And they, they actually developed their own kiosks. And um, there's a, a flip side to all of this. And that is, again, I haven't seen this here in Denver so much, but I've read about it in New York and in other cities where people are stealing the food from restaurants that had been pre-ordered and put in a little cubby for you to pick up, mm -hmm. you know, or claiming to be Ryan Warner when they get there and taking the food that's already paid for or confusing orders because they're in a hurry and they just grab whatever is the closest to them. Like picking up the wrong bag at the airport. Exactly. Uh -huh. So places like Chipotle and Panera and places like that, that use those cubbies in many cases have brought the food back under the counter or behind the counter and are doling it back out to consumers to try to avoid some of that, those problems. A recalibration Yep. in the midst of experimentation, it occurs to me. One final trend that you think may have peaked, and that's ghost kitchens. Uh, what are ghost kitchens, and what would it mean for diners if they have reached their apex? I'm not sure they've peaked necessarily. I do think that the buzz was that ghost kitchens were going to take over the world. And ghost kitchens are, there's kind of two different sets. There's a building somewhere in an industrial area that's filled with 57 kitchens. We have that here in Denver, um, 50, I think it's 56 or 57 kitchens. And people lease out those kitchens and operate their taco concept or their burger concept or their who knows, concept, um, Asian food, many Asian food concepts. They don't ever see the customer. There's an area where the DoorDash, Grubhub, 
Uber Eats guys show up and there's a concierge that goes and gets the food from mm. the kitchens and then the food is delivered. Okay. The second set of ghost kitchens are in restaurants that have dead times. So if a restaurant doesn't serve lunch, for example, maybe they sign up for one of these branded ghost kitchens, which are associated with a celebrity or something like that. And, and they temporarily uh, convert to that. Exactly. They're the pickup point and the preparation point for some kind of food that they would never serve necessarily. And again, this is not a dining-in experience. Not at all. This is a delivery experience. Yeah. The problem is that, you know, one of the reasons we go to restaurants either to sit or to pick up food or whatever is branding. And we like the idea of what they're doing. And it's very difficult for these ghost kitchens, I think, to establish a brand. Many of them are trying with celebrities to marry the two, um, the celebrity image and the, and the restaurant. But hmm. I think, you know, we just have so many of these now. And I think that they're oversupplied in the market. But they're obviously a way of restaurants, you know, given our conversation earlier about the cost of things, especially the the second one you describe, is a way of eking out more profit from your appliances and your space, sure. your bricks and mortar. Yeah, it's taking advantage of the infrastructure that's already in place to make a little bit more money. And they're also, really importantly, a stepping stone for restaurateurs. So, um, oh, food you trucks, dip your toe in the water. Yeah, food trucks were kind of that and maybe still are to some extent where somebody develops a food truck concept, puts it out there, tests it out for a year or so. Some of these food halls are also that, where they, they rent a stall in a food hall and serve their food for a while. But the ghost kitchens allow them to do proof of concept in many cases so that they can take it to a brick-and-mortar location. John, thank you so much. Happy New Year. Well, same to you, Ryan. Always great to listen to you. John Imbergamo of the Imbergamo Group in Denver, which represents restaurants. We'll post his list of 2023 trends to watch in today's podcast at cpr.org slash Colorado Matters. The newest podcast from Colorado Public Radio called Terra Firma brings you the sounds of nature with reflections from Colorado-born writer C. Marie Furman. For me, the sounds in nature are like the voices of friends. I know when I hear the first robin every spring what that means. The sound of wind in trees, the bugle of elk. Those are the memories that, in essence, become the soundtrack to our lives. Find Terra Firma wherever you get your podcasts. Haggling with insurance companies is one outcome of the Marshall Fire, which tore through Boulder County a little over a year ago. CPR's Sarah Mulholland checked back in with three homeowners trying to rebuild. Colleen and Greg Ernstrom finally broke ground on the plot where their five-bedroom home once stood in Louisville. Colleen Ernstrom says that after 12 months of dealing with the mortgage company, the Small Business Administration, FEMA, builders, architects, the Colorado Division of Insurance, and of course their insurance company, the couple finally has a plan to pay for the rebuild. It's like a puzzle coming together. If you add that up, we are still short, but I'm very confident that the way that this is going down, that we'll figure it out. She says the price tag comes to about $400 per square foot, or $1.1 million all in. 
the insurance company offered them a little over $400,000 to rebuild their home. To make up the difference, the Ernstroms are using a mix of debt and grants and their property insurance payout, which is supposed to pay for all the stuff that was lost inside the home, but is instead paying for the house itself. I really think it's awful that we have to use it, but I know a lot of people are. We should be using it to replace our contents. Like a lot of victims of the Marshall Fire, the Ernstroms were shocked to find out they didn't have enough insurance, and they felt they weren't adequately advised when they purchased the policy. They filed a complaint with Colorado's Division of Insurance, but that didn't go anywhere. Mrs. Ernstrom says the division's response went like this. Your insurance denied any problems. Case is closed. Craig Swift also lost a home in Louisville and also filed a complaint about his insurer, State Farm. He says the complaint is technically still open, but not really. He says the insurance company points to a software program that's commonly used by insurers to calculate how much it should cost to rebuild in the event of a total loss. Basically, State Farm's response was that since the agent used the software correctly, there was no fault of theirs. Uh, so forget, forget the fact that the software is inaccurate to a, to a large degree. In a statement to CPR, a spokesperson for State Farm said they can't comment on individual claims. A spokesperson for Colorado's insurance division says it received 196 complaints stemming from the Marshall Fire, and 115 of those are still open and that about $1 million has been recovered for people that filed complaints. According to United Policyholders, a homeowner's insurance advocacy group, two-thirds of wildfire victims in the U.S. are underinsured. And if lodging an official complaint with state regulators doesn't work, there's not a lot of other options. Swift says he's between $150,000 and $180,000 underinsured. And similar to the Ernstroms, we'll be using a big chunk of the property insurance to cover it, in addition to loans. Our only other recourse was to get a lawyer. And while we are underinsured, we're not so underinsured that we can't rebuild. And so we decided not to get a lawyer, assuming that we can still get the rest of our funds. Kathy Perez didn't hire a lawyer or file a complaint when she realized her insurance coverage was also going to come up well short of replacing her Louisville home of 30 years. At first, she was leaning towards not rebuilding at all. I think it was gathering information and it was determining what I wanted to do. Did I even want to live there again? That, that was certainly a part to it. Being single woman at 67, that's a big task to take on. That's a lot to do. That's a lot, a lot to do. But in the end, she decided to make it work, taking what she could get from the insurance company, filling in the gap with loans, help from friends and family, as well as cash from a community fund that's available to all the Marshall Fire victims. She says she's feeling hopeful these days. I'm excited about building my dream home. I'm excited about finishes and thinking about colors and cabinetry and countertops. That feels very joyful. There's no information on how much insurers have paid out in total so far, but the state's insurance commissioner estimates claims could eventually exceed $2 billion. I'm Sarah Mulholland, CPR News. When we come back, comfort food, courtesy of Napoleon. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
In Colorado, you can farm potatoes, sweet corn, melons, peaches, chilies, and you can farm ice. This is what happens in Uray every winter. Ice farmers send the city's excess water down two miles of the Uncompadre Gorge's canyon walls. After about a month of careful monitoring and spraying, Uray Ice Park opens to the public. Since the mid-90s, this mecca of ice climbing draws thousands of people every year. Equipped with crampons, special boots, ropes, harnesses, and axes, they take on 150 different routes and contribute significantly to the local economy. Climbers also enjoy the ice park in Lake City and frozen waterfalls like Fish Creek in Steamboat Springs and Zapata in the San Luis Valley. The sport gained a lot of visibility in 2019 when the first ice climbing World Cup finals in America, featuring a 50-foot high wall of ice, came to downtown Denver. A Colorado postcard from CPR with the support of Coble and Company. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Earlier, we talked about restaurant trends and challenges the industry is up against. It made me think of a conversation I had last summer with Caroline Glover. She won a James Beard Award, Best Chef in the Rocky Mountains. And her restaurant, Annette, is an example of adaptation. It's in Aurora, in the ejector seat factory turned retail center known as Stanley Marketplace. When we walked in late morning, Annette wasn't open for another five hours. And I asked Chef Caroline Glover what it's like to be in her restaurant in the relative quiet. I was here last night. It was super full of people. The lights are dim. The mood is just right. And that's how I left. And then you come back and you kind of feel like the curtain's been pulled. And it's kind of the stark light and you see everything a bit different. Um, But it's what I'm used to. This is my home and I come here every day. Do you spend more time here than your actual home, do you think? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Yes, 100%. No hesitation No hesitation, no. Uh, So thank you for taking the time before, you know, dinner prep begins to make us something. And what you've decided to make (laughs) us is called chicken Marengo. Yes. Why this dish? Well, it was one of the very first dishes that I remember my mom making and really loving. I would assume I was a picky eater growing up, but... um, Why would you assume that? I mean, aren't most kids? I mean, my parents forced me to eat and try a lot of different things, which I think in the long run, that's why I'm here. But I asked for PB&J a lot. Um, But my family has a very strict rule. If you don't eat what my mom made, then you're not eating for the night. So... This was one of my favorite dishes that she made and one of the first dishes I made with her. Chicken Marengo. And where did she get this recipe? Do you have any idea? So this one is um, from The Joy of Cooking. There are a ton of different iterations. Um, I was just Googling it. It used to, I think it came from like Napoleon. His cook made it for him. They won a battle and then it became a dish, but it had crawfish, eggs, like just kind of a kitchen sink type dish, (laughs) but I think the joy of cooking made it a little bit more approachable. And Um, what is in chicken marengo? So this specific variety um, has chicken, tomatoes, black olives, which I don't think is traditional, but I'm a black olive fiend, so I put them in there. Wow, Um, you and I are disagreeing (laughs) on the black olives. Did you like olives as a kid? Loved them. You liked them them even as a kid? Yes. I put them, you know, all 10 fingers and would wiggle (laughs) wiggle my fingers around and eat them all. I love every type of olive. Like if I could live off of them. You would. 100%. It sounds like you actually do, but okay. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So chicken marengo is a slimmed down version perhaps of the original. Yeah. 
And you still like it. Does it I bring you it. back when you eat it? Yes, and I think it's it's a braised dish. So it's kind of something that you cook and put right in the oven. And that's the only way I really cook now. Um, it's easy. I can do other things. So it, it is like very very applicable to my life. I think that'll resonate with a lot of people. Well, before we get to cooking, congratulations on the James Beard Award. Thank you. Do you feel like you've arrived? No. (laughs) (laughs) I'm one of those people where it takes a very long time for things to sink in and I don't let them. So I'm thinking like maybe next year I'll really feel it or something. But, you know, I feel like we're just still in the thick of it. The pandemic's been really rough. We're still going through it. You know, this is a beautiful thing that happened for the restaurant, but I just feel like we have a lot more to get through right now. I know the pandemic was really tough on you. You did adapt. And ostensibly you stayed open. As we walked in, (laughs) we walked past these individual outdoor dining units, Mm -hmm. these kind of... um, Glassy greenhouse sheds. Yeah. 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 This was one adaptation. Yeah, absolutely. We did it, I mean, I guess two years ago now, and we keep saying we're going to take them down. But then, you know, the next wave comes, and our neighborhood has a lot of kids in it. And so as long as people aren't comfortable quite yet, then we'll, we'll keep, you know, accommodating. I also think there's something lovely about eating in your own clubhouse. Yeah. It's so funny. (laughs) I feel like when I go out to eat, I only want to sit at the bar I want to look around. I want to talk to other people. So there, I understand that sentiment, but it's the exact opposite mm. of how I feel when I go out to eat. In the doldrums of the pandemic, how existential did it get for you in this restaurant, Annette? Um, it has taken years off my life, no doubt. It was the hardest thing we've ever done. And I was lucky enough that my husband and I, it's just the two of us. So we just poured our whole entire beings into this spot to make it work. Um, I'm guessing pouring your beings is also pouring your money. Everything. Everything. But, you know, we shut down for 24 hours and we reopened a new restaurant and um, we've just been doing it ever since. What do you mean? You shut down for 24 hours you opened a new restaurant. Yeah. In other words, a totally new approach totally to your new. business. It was a totally to-go restaurant, which we've never done to-go food ever in the history of Annette. We put a burger on. We changed the whole entire menu, um, adapted to having my servers run out to cars, drop things off on people's hood of their cars. Like it just, people called for the orders. We had two people working phone lines. Like it was insane. And now you've had to readapt to in-person dining. Yes. And kind of adapt to the in-between, right? Because some people aren't comfortable dining in. Some people are really comfortable. So trying to make sure that we get both groups of people in here Mm. has been really important. Are you still doing takeout? We are. You are? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, We do a small amount because I know when the fall hits, we want people to remember we can do takeout as well. I mentioned that the restaurant is called Annette. That's not your name. It's not. Whose name is Annette? It's my great aunt's name. Um, She passed right before we opened the restaurant, but I grew up in a very conservative Texas family. She was the one liberal that would come in, drink martinis, um, say whatever she wanted to say, watch Seinfeld every night, and I was just enamored with her. Um, She couldn't cook, never cooked, (laughs) Um, didn't really eat much, but she just is a spirit that I wanted to embody in the restaurant. Now, did she learn that you would be naming your restaurant Annette before she passed? No, no, we didn't get to that point. Um, Now, you mentioned her martinis. Mm -hmm. We're standing 
somewhere between the kitchen and the bar. Yes. Is there a martini on the menu here? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's an Annette martini, and it's a beautiful navy strength gin martini. She drank hers extra dirty. But oh, she liked olives just like you. Loved, so this is where I got the love of olives. This I is ate her, her gin-soaked olives all the time. So I don't know if I like the olives or the booze more, but that's the connection. The, the, as a kid, as a you kid. ate the gin-soaked olives. Yes. Oh, yes. right. It's a little late to call Child Protective Services. I know. She I always guess. would set them on a napkin, and I would, you know, just <laughs> nibble away. <laughs> what have you learned about yourself in the last two years? Um, I mean, I feel like it feels cliche, but we are an adaptive species. We're resilient. Um, I think that I learned that I can do way more than I thought I could. When it came to saving my restaurant and trying to save jobs, not only for my employees, but for vendors and purveyors. Because you thought about the connections oh, yeah. between your restaurant and all of the producers yeah. that make it possible and what their livelihoods were. And the only reason, I mean, not only reason, but right when the pandemic hit, we paid a really large invoice for one of our wine vendors. And he called me crying and said, I didn't expect to get any money the world is shutting down. This is going to help my family. And it just was like this crazy moment of like, oh my God, we have to keep going so other people can keep going. All right, time to get cooking. Again, Chef Caroline Glover of Annette in Aurora is making chicken marengo for us. The recipe is at CPR.org. And so, by the way, is the martini recipe. So I start with chicken thighs. You would use chicken breasts, but I think chicken thighs braise a lot nicer. It's nice to have the bone so the meat comes off of it. You get a lot of flavor. I'm not going to season these because we do brine our chickens overnight for 24 hours. And then we're going to start with onions. I kind of feel like that's how you start a lot of things. In a separate pot, I like to get the browning of the chicken skin going. Um, that way you get a nice fond and a good amount of flavor and a little bit of color. I noticed that you touch the bottom inside of the pan <laughs> with your bare fingers yes. as you move the onions around. I can't feel much heat anymore in my fingers. They're kind of numb. I don't know what it is. Um, my mom calls them asbestos hands. She's like, you can literally grab anything. But I just want to make sure this is like a, a nice thick bottomed pan. And so if you're making it home, you'll probably use like a, a Dutch oven or Le Creuset pot that has a nice. So I wanted to make sure that it got hot enough before I added my onions in. And hot enough that even you could feel it. Yeah, exactly. Once I can feel it, then I know it's go time. <laughs> and then add tomatoes, a little bit of brandy, and bay leaves. Um, we use fresh bay leaves here. I just feel like the flavor is, it doesn't match dried bay leaves. So if you can find fresh bay leaves. Remind me, is it, can I smell a bay leaf? Yeah. I, I realize like, it's not immediately conjuring up a yeah. smell for Give me. Give it a little. Oh, so yeah. peppery. Yeah, so, it's so peppery. Great. Yeah, my mom picks these in Texas and then ships them to me in huge bags, and then we freeze them to last for the year. That's Texas bay leaf. Texas bay leaf. And then put the lid on. So this is where I love this dish. You get it in the oven and you have an hour to kind of get things done. 
especially if you have people over. I hate cooking while everybody's standing around because everybody wants to help. And I don't want help ever in the kitchen. <laughs> Am I hearing a control freak? Oh God, just a little. <laughs> <laughs> don't, I think all control freaks have to open their own thing because eventually <laughs> you become the worst employee. So, <laughs> and then I, I saute the mushrooms separately. I kind of like to get a nice caramelization on them. And then at the very end, I add in black olives, whole black olives. Some people chop them up, but I want the whole briny olive whenever I'm tasting the dish. And while it's in the oven, um, I get rice going um, in a rice cooker. I cheat. I don't cook the rice on the stove. I just get it in the rice cooker, um, and it'll be ready around the same amount of time. I think that many families would tell you that using a rice cooker is not cheating. I it's the smart <laughs> way to go. I feel like, you know, with the altitude, you just don't know what's going to happen. So rice cooker is the way I do it. <laughs> what emerges from the oven is a feast for the stomach and the eyes. Oh, look at that color. That is the most beautiful red. It's so good. Is that all the tomatoes? It's all the tomatoes, yeah. It just has like a, such a nice broth that the rice will soak up. You know, it makes me think that food is such a, a way of transporting us in time that Napoleon might have laid his eyes on something just like this. Isn't it so cool? I love reading the history of food and how things came about and the thought that somebody was on a battlefield and had just eaten chicken marengo is like a pretty cool thing to think about. Wait, did you give me one without olives? Yes, I did. <laughs> That's so nice of a chef to do. I, you, know, you know, I'm not going to force you to eat something. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to be like your mother. No. No, I won't do that. All right. On um, a bed of brown rice, the parsley has added such beautiful color to the red that I was mentioning. And it should just kind of, you know. Oh, yes. That chicken just comes right, right off it. the bone. Yeah. Didn't even use the knife. No. Just use the side of the fork. <laughs> it's hot. Mm. The richness of the bay leaves comes through. It does. It's crazy. I went from smelling bay leaves a little earlier to tasting it. It's a lovely infusion, but it's not overpowering. Right, yeah. I mean, it's just kind of comfort in a bowl. It is comforting. It's interesting you say comforting because I feel like we need more of it these days. I totally agree. When we opened... We said we were comfort food, which I fully believe we are, but sometimes our menu may not read as comfort food until you get it. It's not all mac and cheese. Exactly. Um, and okay, this is funny. Our very first review of the restaurant was horrific. It was so bad. It was the worst review we've ever gotten. And this was a published critic's review? It was review? a published critic's review. I will not mention her name, but her whole critique was that it wasn't comfort food. But if you think mac and cheese is the only comfort food, I think comfort comes from familiar flavors, different memories that it invokes. So that's what this dish does for me. Well, bravo to you and, you know, a nod to your mom as well. Yes. yes. And Napoleon, maybe. <laughs> yes, Napoleon's cook. Thanks for being here and congratulations. Thank you. Caroline Glover, chef and owner of Annette Gastropub in Aurora. She was James Beard Mountain Chef for 2022. We spoke in July. Recipes for Chicken Marengo and the Annette Martini are at CPR.org.
And that is Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC.